people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. and gentlemen. We are privileged to witness one of our foremost scientists at work. However, to assure the complete success of this most intricate experiment, he must have absolute quiet. I repeat, absolute quiet. It shouldn't have done that. Who'd be a scientist? But if at first you don't succeed, try... Try... Try again. Mr. Hoskins, it's worked! I've done it! I've got to see Mr. Burnley! I've done it! I've done it! Stop him! Stop him! Sister, what's the trouble? He's mad, that's the trouble. I know what they offered you. You could live the rest of your life on it. Go anywhere, do as you please. And if you want me, I come too. Alec Guinness, the screen's most versatile star, triumphantly augments his gallery of brilliant film portraits as the man in the white suit. Hello. Hello. He saw his great discovery as a force for good. It's more important than anything. It's going to astound the world. They saw in it a danger to his fellow men and branded it a threat to industry. We need control of this discovery. Complete control. If you want twice the amount in that contract, we will pay it. A quarter of a million? To suppress it. Yes. You're an irresponsible young idiot. Father, no. And you're a pompous and ungrateful old ass. Oh. Nonsense! No, father! Nonsense! If you think I'd give my invention to you, you must be crazy! I wouldn't give it to you if you were the last man on earth. I wouldn't give it to you if you went down on your bended knees and begged me for it. I won't stay in your house another minute. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. A.J. Black. Pleasure to be back, Mike. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mark Begley. Guggle, glurb, gurgle. This week we are looking at the 1951 film from Alexander McKendrick, The Man in the White Suit. The film stars Alec Guinness as Sidney Stratton, an inventor who comes up with a fabric that will never wear out, never get dirty, and I don't think it probably even wrinkles either. He soon comes to the attention of both the bosses at the textile mills as well as the workers and quickly learns that his good intentions are not appreciated in the least, with the possible exception of Daphne Burnley, the boss's daughter. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Man in the White Suit, please do so and come back after you have. We will still be here. 
So, AJ, when was the first time you saw the man in the white suit, and what did you think, sir? I first saw this many years ago when I was a kid. It was on one of the BBC channels, I think, repeated, because obviously this came out good 30-plus years before I was born. <laughs> I definitely didn't see it in the cinema at the time. I was very young, but I remember finding it a lot of fun. It stuck in my mind, certain of the images, certain of the the, the noise, which Mark gave us a brilliant rendition of earlier. <laughs> And just the visual of him in this almost fluorescent white suit set against the black and white, those things stuck in my mind. But it had been a long time since I'd watched this, and I didn't know the context of Elin Studios and things like that at that time. But it was just... And, and, and I didn't necessarily grow up with lots of black and white movies. You know, I was I was a child of the, of the 80s and 90s watching all of that stuff, really. So whenever something from a, an era... By, a bygone era did come on the television it really stuck in my head and there was just something fun about this movie that i i felt at the time and watching it again that was all still there really it really brought back some vivid childhood memories for me yeah one of those childhood films that stays with you i guess i watched this for the first time last week and this was a episode that you put me on so i, I remember uh, i guess that was sometime late last year and I thought, ooh, what's this? Didn't know the title. And so I, all I did was look at the description on IMDb. I was like, okay, this is an old British film that I'm completely unfamiliar with. Curious when I watch it as to why Mike picked me for this. I may have just been to fill a slot. I don't know. That's fine. Always happy to be on the show. I usually watch things when that's happened in the past. I watch them immediately. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm going to wait on this. I'm going to wait until it's close just because I wanted it to be fresh for me, fresh and new and, and try and figure out why I'm on this episode. And uh, then I started to get a little trepidatious because I thought, oh, there's this whole Ealing comedies thing that's a huge blind spot for me. And I thought, well, maybe I should have watched this last year. And then watched a number of other Ealing comedies, watched some of Alec Guinness's early stuff in those Ealing comedies. And of course, by then it was too late. So, but um, I had an absolute blast watching this. And if nothing else, it's now opened up that world for me to explore further on. I've seen a little bit of Kind Hearts and Coronets and still didn't really get the idea of his, Alec Guinness's early comedic roles and how, I mean, in with that film in particular, where it's like he was doing the Peter Sellers thing before Peter Sellers was doing the Peter Sellers things of playing nine characters and, you know, I just, I'm like, I got to watch these movies. Watched a couple documentaries about the studio and thought, oh yeah, need to pick up on this. I think the only other film of theirs that I've seen is Dead of Night, which is complete. I mean, there are some comedic bits in that, but um, yeah, so I'm excited to learn more and, and had an absolute blast watching this movie. Yeah, this was a new one for me as well. This is a request from one of our Patreon donors, John Jenks. And I watched it when I was asking for the requests last year and watched it the first time. And I was like, ah, I'm not sure if I like this movie or not. And then when I rewatched it again for the show, I was like, what was I thinking? This is a great movie. Was I just like in a bad mood or what was going on? Because this was a lot of fun. And this plays right into 
you know, some of the stuff that I love to talk about, there's this whole class warfare type of thing, this whole thing of inventions that are being suppressed and, you know, what's bad for the bosses, what's bad for the workers, all this. And then, yeah, Alec Guinness is fantastic in it. And I'm really only familiar with Alec Guinness from more of his dramatic roles. I mean, obviously I grew up with Star Wars, so he was always Obi-Wan Kenobi to me. But even apart from that, I mostly knew him from the David Lean films, and I'm talking Bridge on the River Kwai, and I think he was in Dr. Zhivago as well, and then uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And so I really thought of him as much more of a serious actor. And then I watched something like this, and I'm like, oh, wow, he can do everything. And he is such an interesting character in here. And I want to say there's times where he might be coded as gay as well, just because he's got these two women that are after him. He's not interested in them in the least. Um, he just seems to be all about his science and all about this creation. And we don't get a whole lot of him saying, oh, I want to create this so that I am doing this for humanity or whatever. It just feels like he's got a bug and he wants to do this thing and he's constantly trying to perfect it. And he doesn't even care about having a job a lot of times. He just wants the lab. He just wants to go into the lab, use the equipment. No matter what it is, he will do this. And I, I yeah, I was very, very happy uh, watching this the second time. And now, like you, Mark, I want to go watch a lot more of these Ealing comedies. It's funny because a few weeks ago we covered Local Hero. And there's a lot in that that came from Whiskey Galore, which was an earlier Ealing comedy. And so now it feels like tis the season of Ealing for me. And now I've got Kind Hearts and Coronets in the Lavender Hill mob and a bunch of other things that I've downloaded. And it's like, okay, I'm ready to walk into this world and see what happens. Yeah, I did something really similar, Mike, in that in prep for this, I went and got into some Ealing stuff. Because we're lucky in the UK that they're all on a sub-channel called Studio Canal, uh, like a streamer. And they've put all of the Ealing stuff on there. It's, it's basically got everything from Dead of Night all the way through to stuff like I'm All Right Jack, you know, Pete Sellers and that kind of stuff. Um, and including uh, the man in the white suit and Kind Hearts and Coronets, the Lavender Hill Mob, both of which I've recently watched. I'm halfway through Whiskey Galore and enjoying it, which you mentioned before. It's got loads of great stuff on there. And the takeaway so far for these movies, which growing up when I did, I was a little bit too removed from the Ealing stable. I grew up with the Carry On movies, which in many ways are the next phase from Ealing. Ealing is much more classic sort of British comedy. It's very polite. It's very witty. Whereas the Carry On movies steadily grow into more farce and, and lewd comedy as they go through the sixties. But you can see that you can see the connectives. You can see where Ealing transforms more into that style in, in British comedy. I didn't grow up so much with Ealing, even though they were on the television. Hence, why, like I say, I saw Men in the White Suit. But going back to them, you really see how much they influence various different things. You know, the Lavender Hill Mob, I think, absolutely has a little bit of an influence on the Italian job, even though that sounds ridiculous. But there is absolutely a little bit of that tether of the anti-heroes banding together to, you know, fight against the system. And they they are, it's funny you should say, Mike, about Guinness not being particularly sexual in that way. They are quite, or maybe gay-coded, they are quite, in a way, asexual characters in Ealing movies that I've I've noticed. And Guinness tends to play characters like this. You know, even though when they're surrounded by beautiful women, Joan Greenwood is just gorgeous and her voice is amazing. Like, oh, in, in my these voice, movies. Man. Oh, my that God. Voice is like, something. 
I need ASMR tapes of that voice. Just like knocked me out, man. Ah, same, same. And, you know, you would be attracted to that woman, I think. So there's an interesting, it's interesting the way they, the Ealing style, which you really do see in The Man in the White Suit, even if it's not the greatest example of Ealing, it's all there in this film. And it's it's very particular. It's both dated and it's aged very well, actually, in many ways, because it really does feel that it, it is the 40s and the 50s in that style. And in that way, it makes it them, them really quite special and unique, actually, I think. To the characterization of Alec Guinness's character in this, there's a line towards the end of the film where when they're trying to figure out how to manipulate him and one of the guys says, he didn't seem to me to be the type in regard to you know, their idea of using women or a woman to trick him into this. And I thought, oh, well, yeah. He does fully kiss Daphne after that. And I just love that. that I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but the fact that she is happy that he rebuffs her. He's like, I would have strangled you if you had said yes to this. And let's let's go. Let's go turn this suit over to the press and etc. Yeah, she is basically set up to be this prostitute by her own father, which is amazing. When she starts saying, well, I believe there's a price associated with this, and she just wants to see how far she can push her own father into prostituting his daughter. And when she finds out what the kind of people are that she's dealing with, and then, yeah, what she really is then testing out Sydney and just like, are you going to go for this offer? You know, look, look at all this, look at what's going on here. And then he's like, yeah, no, I, I'm all about this suit. That's the only thing I'm about. You know, this suit that they, it takes a blowtorch to cut the fabric and the Douglas Slocum photography in this movie is amazing. The way that he glows in that suit and the way that there are just, there's some amazing shots. There's one shot where he's hiding from Daphne in one of the labs and there's a light that's down below Guinness and shining up onto his face while he's in this little dark room. It is so nice. Such a brilliant looking shot. It just really, really works for me. And this whole movie is filled with great shots like that. I was struck by the composition in a, in a number of scenes. Just hallway shots were composed so interestingly. There's a shot when the electron microscope shows up from the back of the truck backing up into the the lobby or the um dock and i'm like oh man that was nice something going on from the foreground all the way to the background where sid is kind of hiding and gorgeous composition and gorgeous black and white not quite noirish but still there were plays with more with texture and space than say with light and dark but it was really fun to watch there is a slight noir tinge to this, this whole idea of having the voiceover from, I believe it's Behringer, the, the senior, the owner of the company, talking about how he was visiting Corlin's factory, and that's when he runs into this guy, and this whole thing of going into a laboratory and the Google Club equipment being set up there, and that they find out that this equipment has cost them 4,000 pounds, and nobody's claiming responsibility. No one says why is this here? Who ordered this? And nobody can give the answer. And it's because Sydney has been in this lab and he's been ordering all of this stuff kind of surreptitiously and bringing it in. I think it goes from 4,000 pounds to later on, there's 8,000 pounds and sundries that have been charged. And it's just like, 
they're incensed and they eventually kick him out. He goes right to the employment office and then gets a job at another textile mill and just kind of works his way through there, eventually gets into the lab again. And I love your talk about that electron microscope. He's supposed to be just some dude who works at the factory, but yet he's just like, oh no, you have to turn this on and then this on and oh, don't touch that. You know, that'll, that'll ruin the power and all this kind of stuff. And then he pretty much, they're just like, yeah, why don't you come work in this laboratory? But we're not going to pay you anything more. We're not really even going to pay you at all. And that really, you know, puts a crimp in Bertha, who is one of the workers. And she's also interested in Sydney. And she's just like, you're working for free? No, no, we, you know, we've got a union for a reason. We're going to protect you. And he's just like, no, no, I, I'm good. I just want to work in this laboratory. I don't need anything else. My landlady will agree that I'm not going to pay rent. And I guess I'll just find food at the factory or something. And yeah, he's just so focused on that science. He just wants to make that that formula work for him. Scab labor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They talk about scabs a lot in this movie. <laughs> it, it's interesting, though. It's two, two, two little things. I mean, the first thing about the voiceover you mentioned, uh, Mike, it, that seems to be a real Ealing staple in various movies. There's a little bit of that in Lavender Hill Mob. There's a lot of that in Kind Hearts and Coronets. I was trying to watch that last night. I was just like, oh, my God, the, the voiceover is more than any of the dialogue in the movie. Yeah, it's like an audio book. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> is. Like, it really is. And it, it works amazingly well, considering. Um, so that's definitely something that, you know, is, is a recurring feature. But about, like, Sydney's, you know, motivation working for free, it almost seems like this film, in some ways, is playing off what was the uh, the established sort of Ealing model of how they worked as a studio? Because it was very much a studio that was built on a sense of collegiate community and a lot of filmmakers and writers and directors and, uh, and everyone involved, getting involved in all the different projects, working together, pulling due, late duty, etc. The rumour is that Sydney was based a little bit on McKendrick as a person, especially after you know his experience on, on Whiskey Galore particularly, which was a bit tricky from by all accounts but it's just very interesting how Elin almost feels like at this point they've been going for a while they have been successful even though they've got some of their biggest successes you know still to come but there almost is a sense that they're playing off that as a, as a company this this idea that was that was very much born out of the late 40s in, in the in the UK and the way that the the post-war the social contract had changed a lot with the clement attlee government which came in with, with labor with the birth of the national health service and all these things that were circling around at the time Ealing was really coming to prominence after the war and the way they worked um and it's it's just interesting how i think some of these things ported into some of these scripts that they wrote at the company so there might have been a little bit of inspiration there i don't know i should probably also say that the guy who ends up taking the fall for all of that equipment is this character, Michael. And Michael and Daphne, they seem to be a couple at the beginning of the film, but quickly dissolve. It feels more like there's tension rather than desire for the rest of the film. The implication is that he's after her money, or more accurately, her father's money, which he even says at some point. He's like, he's not after my money. And he interrupts her and says, mine. And... She sees it every time there's some interaction with Sydney or something about the suit or even other things where she's realizing, oh, yeah, that is what he's all about. And again, towards the end of the film, when they're all chasing Sydney, he pushes her out of the way. And that's like the final, final straw for her. Like, oh, okay, 
you know, he doesn't care really about me. I got a little confused too about the back and forth between the companies. And it didn't help that she's the daughter of Burnley and she's dating Corland, who is the other mill where he starts, gets fired from Corland, goes to Burnley. She sees him at Burnley, which makes sense because she would be there. But at the beginning, they're all at Corland's. And then they switch to Burnley. And then at some point, they're back at Corland's or he gets fired. I got a little, I'm like, which factory is he actually working for right now? He says he's not employed by Burnley. That's because he's in the lab and he's kind of gotten this deal where he can do what he wants to do, but he's not getting paid. So I, I misconstrued that the first time I watched it. And I'm like, wait a minute, did he get fired from there too? Not not quite yet. Well, yes, he does, but then he's back on. It took me a bit. It didn't help that they were all not just two separate textile mills, but that the families of those mills were sort of intertwined as well. And I'm like, wait a minute, who's who's narrating? Oh, it's the dad. Okay. Who's yeah. <laughs> it's kind of Romeo and Juliet the way that it's set up. But yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one that was a little confused about which factory is which. And for a while I was like, was there even another factory? Was this all Burnley's? And I've just misconstrued things. So I'm glad that I wasn't the only person with that. I suppose they visually didn't really do enough to distinguish, did they really? And make it clear. It you was know, just that the that signs, was... and the signs were very similar. <laughs> Burnley's and Cord, they were in the same font. and <laughs> Well, I think it's really supposed to say just how tight all of these companies are, because then when Sir John Kierlaw shows up, all of these factories are basically kind of reporting up to him, it feels like. He's like the big patriarch of all this, which is amazing, because it's Ernest Thessinger who, again, talking about being coded gay, you didn't really need to code him very much at all because he was kind of, and I don't mean any offense by this, but kind of a screaming queen. Like he would do these very ultra roles and things like uh, the Bride of Frankenstein or, you know, um, the Old Dark House. The, the Old Dark know. House. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. it was the same guy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I knew he looked familiar. There's a couple familiar faces in here, but I was like, I wouldn't know him from anything. But oh, yeah. Pretorius, right? Yes, exactly. Dr. Pretorius. Yeah. The way that they set up him coming in is amazing. Just all of these shots and the way that they won't reveal his face. And at first I was thinking, speaking of Alec Guinness, you know, doing all these multiple roles. At first I thought when they uh, revealed him that it was going to be Alec Guinness. Which would, would have, wouldn't have been a surprise, would it? And he could have done it, I think. He could have done that. He could have just taken his toupee off and looked older. I know it's black and white, but it looks almost like red hair to me, the way that the black and white is hitting it. And just, yeah, very, yeah, I, I imagine he would cut quite a figure in that white suit if he had a big shock of red hair on his head. With Thessinger, was that, was that the, do you think they knew that the audience would, at the time, would recognize him as a major actor do you think that's the why they they shot it in that way i think so i think so because it does feel like they are really saving a, a big reveal for him which went over my head not realizing that was him but i think if i hadn't made that connection even for me in 2022 i would have gone like oh he's kind of a big deal because otherwise i didn't understand the obfuscation of him up until they finally show him. And I thought, and who in the hell is this guy? Is he the knight of 
textile mills. I mean, you know, Sir John, I don't know. <laughs> Could it also be uh, to suggest he has that power? And that's part of the reason why, you know, and then it's all about who is this man, you know, he's because as, as a, a knight of the realm, presumably like somebody, a major conglomerate power, you know, he has that authority. So maybe there's a little bit of that in there as well. I definitely think so. Yeah, I think it's really supposed to be look at how powerful this is and look at that. We've we've awakened the sleeping giant and now he's part of this whole mess and now things are really going to get sorted out and now it becomes much more of a you know the bosses versus the labor and everybody turning against poor sydney because it's like if you make this fabric the mills will shut down in a month after they make enough for everybody to have enough of this cloth because it will never wear out and never get sturdy any of this stuff so that's it and then you've got the textile mill owners realizing well we'll make a lot of money but then we'll be out of business. So we have to stop this. Labor has to stop this. And I love that one uh, little speech from one of the guys from the union who's talking about, well, you've heard about the uh, car that runs on water and just a little something else or about the razor blade that never gets dull. You know, these things all exist, but they've all been put down because this whole forced obsolescence is what makes the world go round at this point. We are uh, much more in a throw away the old one, buy a new one than we are about getting things fixed, which is still the same way that this world is now. I mean, if not way worse, I mean, all of our phones, it's like, what are you going to do with these things? I don't know. You know, I've got a new phone. What can I do with the old one? I've got all this electronic equipment that now it doesn't work anymore. I'm not going to go solder these wires and try to figure out this stuff. So away it goes and bring me something new. Let me just buy go to Amazon and get a new thing. Well, they even suggest, don't they, that there's, there's been hints that Apple intentionally sort of make their batteries, you know, so they actually wear down quicker, so you have to get a new phone. And it wouldn't surprise me, like, you know, all of these kinks in, in technology that mean you just repeat the cycle. You buy again, you buy again, you buy again, you fill the machine. They, they've often talked about the possibility of things like zero-point energy being able to fix, you know, the, the, the energy crisis. And it's like, even if these things exist... You know, they probably somebody's probably bought the pattern and they're sitting on it because they know that it will it will it will break this system. And this is a great early example of that idea, I think. Yeah, that term built in obsolescence. I'm not sure when I first heard it, but it was in a high school or college. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the most cynical thing I've ever heard. But it's absolutely true. And, and Apple is the worst at it since we've already brought them up with not only the batteries, but. Every time there's a new phone, and I think they've kind of laid off on this, you need a different charger. So you can't even keep your old charger or headphones. There's a new plug. The plug is shaped differently. So you can't play, you know, or you've got to buy a dongle that connects the two. And cars are not meant to last. If you get 15 years out of an appliance, you consider yourself lucky. And it's just the grossest thing. But... Yeah, what do you do if you only have to buy one f- refrigerator in your life? This will last you your lifetime. Great. So it costs, I, I would assume it's going to cost an arm and a leg, and that's where they make all their money is up front and then don't care, you know. Unless your house burns down, then I guess you would need another one. Sometimes you pass down your appliances from one generation to the next, you know. That's how good some of this stuff ran. Right, or cars from the 50s still running. Or uh, We've lived in our house for 15 years now, and that's when I start looking at everything. Like, when are you going to break down 
when are you going to break down? We just replaced our whole HVAC unit over the summer. So I was like, well, that was the time for that. And fridge, when are you next? And <laughs> I mean, fridge and stuff I can handle. It's the big things that are <laughs> scary. You know, I've got an iPad where I read most of the materials for this show. And recently, the Kindle app, the OS is old enough on your machine, on your iPad, and you can't upgrade to the next OS because of your machine being that old. Oh, and this new Kindle app won't run on your old stuff, and you can't download the older version of it. I'm just like, what the fuck, man? I don't want to have to buy a new iPad every five years, but that's basically Apple's plan is, oh, well, and then eventually you, you know, now every time I go to open Google Docs, it's like, oh, this won't open. You have to kill that app, download a new one from the app store, and it'll be like, oh, you want to download the older version? Yes, I do. And then it just tries to keep upgrading it. I'm like, stop it. Stop it. I'm really okay being stuck in 2017. It's not that long ago. Yeah, I thought I wasn't going to be able to read the book on my iMac because it even when I opened it on my phone, it said, well, you can read it here, but you probably won't be able to read it on your iMac, which the phone is connected to, Because, but I, it opened just fine. So I don't know. There's a thing that Daphne says at one point where, you know, when this is, seems to become an apparent that he's created this revolutionary piece of polymer for people. She says, don't you understand what this means? Millions of people all over the world live in lives of drudgery, fighting an endless losing battle against shabbiness and dirt. You've won that battle for them. You've set them free. The whole world's going to bless you. And, that's, and it's, it sounds grand. It sounds ridiculous because it's just a suit. But it, it represents something else, doesn't it? It represents the idea that people don't have to be trapped anymore in this cycle, this capitalist cycle of churn uh, that exploits them ultimately. For, for financial gain that they can buy this one thing and it will last forever and that's revolutionary in that way isn't it ultimately and it's a it, it's a brilliant idea for a, for a story and i didn't think it was going to go this way i have to say i really didn't think the plot was going to become in that last 40 minutes i mean it's fun obviously and it's 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 a, ch- it's a bit of a chase and that kind of thing but it is getting to the nub of this big idea that you don't really see explored in movies very often well and how that affects labor and capital. And as I'm watching it the first time thinking, oh yeah, well, that the owners aren't going to like this because they'll only have to make so many. And then you get to the point with Bertha and, and the two guys that are always with her, Frank and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, where they're giving it like, well, yeah, but what about us? If there's no textile to mill, then we're out of a job. And they're like, immediately, let's go to the works committee. This ain't going to happen. Uh, no, it's not. It's Bertha again. When she mentions this finally to Sid, when he's back at his old flat and there's a old geezer in there that's already got his spot, she realizes that he doesn't even care about that. It's all about the suit and this accomplishment or achievement of his. It's not until his landlady, Mrs. Watson, says, what about my bit of wash? And then finally, that look of like, oh, shit, this is going to affect everybody. Even the wonderful, nice lady who let me live here rent-free for a couple of weeks and has probably let him do things like that in the past since his employment record has been very spotty, to say the least. That's the only thing that gets him. And who ultimately is old. She's not at work, but she literally finds purpose 
in the drudgery. You know, she finds purpose in the drudgery. And that's the thing. And he's like, oh, wow, okay. Well, maybe people don't want to be liberated (laughs) in a way. And maybe people don't. You know, maybe one of the messages of this movie, because it almost paints Sydney as almost like a a, a terrible omen to come, you know, or or that might still be out there, almost like a boogeyman is going to, you know, by the end. And it's like, well... Maybe that's the point. Maybe maybe it's suggesting that people, well, maybe the world's not ready yet for it. Certainly in the mid fifties, and maybe still now. I don't know. But it, it's a, yeah, it, those little moments. I agree, Mark. It's it's a great way of him going. Oh, okay, the scales fall from his eyes. And he's like, oh wow, okay, I get it now. Well, that's the argument that I hear these days about renewable energy and green energy. Is well, what's going to happen to all the people that work at the petrol stations and this and that and the other thing? And it's just like there's always jobs, you know, like this will open up a whole new industry and it'll be a switch. It'll be a transition, but we'll get through it. You know, we, we managed to take on the addition of cars in our world and we managed to take on gas stations and just this whole infrastructure of gas stations. I mean, when I was working at a, the electric vehicle project for Ford, it was just like, well, what if I want to take a, a trip down to Florida how will I know where these charging stations are? Because you can't charge at a gas station. There are specific stations for you. Well, now we got to come up with an app that will have a map on it that will have this. And it's like, well, what about cell coverage and all this? And it's like, we'll be able to get through this. Trust me, we'll figure it out. It's not going to be that big of a deal. And when people are just like, well, you can only go 300 miles. It's like, well, that's how far I go in my car right now before I have to fill up. So it's really okay. Do you think if this film had been made in America at that time, the message would have been different? In that at the end of the war, the British people have been through such a massive period of change and are going through a massive period of change that when you're getting into the early 50s, the the thought of this modernity, of this rush of technology, which is unstoppable, and the film suggests at the end that this is unstoppable, this is going to happen, you know, this, this big idea, this big change. But the fear is, certainly in, in England, in this very old-fashioned England of mills of people working in these, you know, these jobs, that maybe it's just too much too soon at that at this point. In America, however, at that point, I know there was a lot going on after the war still, but maybe there was more of a sense of optimism, like you say, Mike, that you could make that car go 300 miles an hour or whatever. You know, would it have been different on that side of the pond, I wonder? Yeah, a lot of times I feel like the people in the 50s thought they were living in the space age. And it's just like, oh, yeah, the world is this whole new place. And, you know, that's when like suburbs and things came about because it's like all these people returning from the war and they don't want to live in the cities. They want to live more in the country or around the cities. So that's when the suburbs start to do. And so, yeah, I think that they would have been like, oh, yeah, no, this is great. But at the same time, America is all about just like th- that Tucker automobile that does all of these great things. No, he's not playing on the same field as the Fords, the Edsels, the the Pontiacs, all of these things. Get that guy out of there. So this whole idea of collusion, I mean, that's as American as apple pie. It feels like a very a big idea that could have been made in various different places across the world, but a very British way of looking at it. <laughs> Almost a bit pessimistic, which is classic British viewpoint, really. Well, this being shot in 1950 and coming out in 51, I mean, to your point, there's a lot of rubble around. This is still very post-war. Things haven't been cleaned up that much. It feels very, very dirty, very underworld, especially when he's running around towards the end. It almost feels like M to me, the way that everyone is after him. I mean, and that's kind of like M, the whole idea of the cops are after him 
and the thieves are after him. And in this one, it's the the labor leaders and and the, and the unionists. You know, yeah. As we're talking, I'm thinking I, maybe they were a little short sighted in their negativity about the suit because nobody just owns one suit. Nobody owns one item of clothing. I mean, people would still be buying multiple suits as kids grow. You know, you you may never damage a shirt or, or a pair of shorts, but if they could figure out the dye thing, which he sort of had a solution for already, I'm not a clothes horse, but I look in my closet and I'm like, I still have quite a bit of clothing here. People would buy more than one thing for the different looks. So there you've got an opportunity of, well, we just make everything, you know, in multiple colors, multiple fashions, multiple styles, multiple fits. We're still going to be okay. So I don't know. I kind of think maybe. <laughs> but that's the thing. They panic though, don't they? They immediately don't think in those terms. They, they, oh, okay, maybe we could market this. in. If it was today, they would, but we can market this in a different way. We could have multiple lines, multiple versions. They panic and they go, oh my God, this is going to bring everything to its knees. That's what's interesting. And Sydney, I suppose, why he's such a fun character is that he's so driven in that mode of the scientist that he doesn't he doesn't even take any of these things into account. It's just about what I'm creating is what matters, you know, ultimately. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I was more sympathetic towards Sydney. And the second time I thought, you're just kind of being selfish. All you care about is this wonderful achievement. And if Going to the papers wasn't as big of a deal to him. Getting the recognition, I probably would still be sympathetic with him on the second viewing and further viewings. But at, I don't know, that second time I was knowing how he thinks of this while I was watching it, and I thought, yeah, you're kind of being a dick, though. Because you don't care about Bertha and the union workers. Uh, I don't know. But not that he's an awful character, but it's it's that person with blinders on that doesn't see how this affects the humans around him. Well, it's interesting, too, that there is this whole thing that the corporate people are trying to do where it's proof of ownership. Does Burnley own this fabric or is it Sydney? You know, who came up with this? And there's that whole thing you know, that even as today, if you work at a company and you come up with an invention, technically it belongs to the company because almost always you are do you know you have signed a contract that says anything that I invent is going to be you know owned by this place? But then they find oh he came up with this in September and his contract actually started in October, so he owns this stuff. There's that whole thing too, where it's just like oh my god he's an independent person. We have to put this down now because if it was Burnley that owned it, he'd be like okay cool I'll just suppress this. That's not a problem. And then as soon as the word gets out about it, the stock prices start to fall like crazy. And that's when, yeah, that panic really rolls in. They're just like, oh my God, we have to do something about this. We have to suppress this right now. That's what gave it a modern tinge to me. I'm like, oh, this shit is happening right now. You know, I mean, that's something comes out and this stocks, well, you know, what happened recently with, with stocks and um, during the pandemic. And it's just funny how, how panic causes that and thinking, you know, just breathe for a minute and let things kind of sort themselves out here. It, it, it just suggests, it suggests how fearful people are that the system isn't very robust 
and that it could just go, it could just go all crumble. When it's probably like you say, Mark, if you, if if there was more rat reason baked in, and to think, I'm going to take a moment that it probably would, it wouldn't be as bad as people think. But there is an immediate panic button, you know, that happens always, and then and then often that causes problems in itself. So yeah, this this is a great example of that hysteria, I suppose. That, that comes of this but what's the great thing about the man in the white suit is that it's it, it's an unusual kind of hysteria the way it is formed around not just different class systems but different you know labor systems power people in power and it, and that that hysteria isn't always drawn in cinema i think in that way you know without it becoming too complicated without them sitting there and having these really intellectual you know dissections of <laughs> of economic theory or whatever it's still a fun film. It still it still breezes along, but at the same time, all of this is underneath, which is you know, which is great. Actually, it's a really good blend. Yeah, that was the really surprising thing for me was was all of the labor talk and the how this affects the different levels of that and of, of you know just the textile industry. It could be any industry. Just think about a few weeks ago when. Somebody came onto Twitter and pretended they were Eli Lilly and said that they were giving away insulin. That was the example I was thinking of, yes. And it's like, oh, wow, you're doing this amazing thing. You're going to be giving away insulin to people that actually need it. And instead of being rewarded, suddenly the whole you know thing goes into the shitter. It's like, wow, that's how we feel. Okay. Yep. Which so is why changed. I don't play the stock market. <laughs> That's one of the many reasons I don't, other than my 401k, which I have no idea what it's doing. Like I, that stuff is just beyond me. Like I couldn't, I can't even handle that kind of stress. <laughs> but nothing has changed in 72 years, you know, 71 years. Clearly, you know, it's the same panic. The moment somebody creates something or suggests this might actually improve people's lives. Is it going to make money? No. Down it goes, you know, and it's it's terrifying, really. You mentioned some familiar faces. We should also say that Michael Corlin is played by Michael Go, I believe is how you pronounce his name, who most of us will know as Alfred from the Tim Burton Batman films. And also Dr. Paul Flamond from Top Secret. Other than Alec Guinness, he was the most familiar to me. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy. And speaking of Alec Guinness, you mentioned, you know, Star Wars and those David Lean films. I think for me, for the longest time, my only association with him was either Obi-Wan Kenobi or Benson Mum. And that was it. Those oh, were the Benson two films. <laughs> yes. So I knew he did have him. a little bit of a comedic uh, yeah. touch to him. <laughs> oh, he was so good as Benson Mum. I just had Mom. to bring that up. There were some fun character actors in this, actually. Some fun. I, I noticed some other people who might be more recognizable to British viewers. Um, Cecil Parker as um, Burnley is a, is a gr- it was a great British actor. He appeared. I mean, he was in loads of things going back to like the Lady Vanishes, you know, things like that. But he he he's, he was in lots of stuff. He was in a few other Ealing things. I think he was in the Lady Killers as well. He's he's one of those classic British actors of the forties, fifties, sixties, particularly um, who uh, he's recognisable to British viewers. And there were various other small roles with with people in. But there, were, there was also Miles Mallison who plays the tailor and he's memorable in kind hearts and coronets because he appears he sort of bookends the movie and he appears in a very key role at the end and he's this very lugubrious kind of bit hitch very looks very much like hitchcock he's got that very much oh yes he's got that jowly thing going on and he's very good very fun so it was peppered with little people like that and recurring ealing faces actually who would pop up even in small roles which was quite fun 
There was another guy, the guy that plays Wilkins. He doesn't have a very big part, but I'm like, he looks awfully familiar to me. And I scrolled through his IMDb and I couldn't quite place it to a specific movie. But yeah, there were, and even Bertha, the actress that played Bertha looked somewhat familiar. I'm like, was she in a Hitchcock movie or something? She might have been. She might have been. Yeah, she was. She was a, a Liverpudlian actress, I think, but I'm not sure. Yeah, there were just, there were just various people who who popped in. Who, um, yeah, so which which added added to the flavour of it. Really, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing a lot of these faces in some of those other Ealing Studio movies because I do want to. I never watched the Lady Killers. I remember when the remake came out, and I never watched that one, and I realized, oh, this is a remake of an old British comedy. Just never got around to seeing it. But again, on some of those documentaries, they showed a lot of clips from it. And I'm like, oh, this looks like a gas with Herbert Lom, Alec Guinness, Peter Sellers all together. Good grief. Yeah, I've only seen the Coen Brothers version of it, which I thought was going to be awful, but I actually ended up enjoying it quite a bit. Okay. I, it's, I don't know why I've avoided that one. Well, I'll tell you that shot of Tom Hanks dresses the dapper Southern gentleman doing that snorty laugh. That was almost enough to turn me off of that film, just from the trailer. Doesn't he have weird teeth, too, or something? Uh, Maybe. Yeah. And I think that's taken from the original. Al Guinness has some interesting teeth in in the shots that I saw of him in (laughs) that. (laughs) He is British. What are you going to do? It's true. He's always been bald then, right? Because I noticed that this was a toupee that he was wearing in this film. And I know that his hairpiece in Star Wars... I always forget that he's bald in, I mean, I buy the hairpiece in, in Star Wars, but then again, you know, I was five when I first saw it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he would be over the moon that you know him mainly from Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know he was Whoops. a big fan of being in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never understand why he came back and shot scenes for like Empire and Return of the Jedi when he's the ghost. I, if he hated it that much, why did he do? I mean, the money probably, but still makes me laugh. I tell you, I'm looking forward to seeing more Joan Greenwood films now because, oh my God, hubba hubba, she, she plays quite a uh, important role in Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is probably in many ways the most sexual film that Elin did that i've seen so far the main character in that who is a mate he's not guinness really actually guinness is in it a lot but he's not the main character the main guy in that dennis price he's really good and it's very and she is she's not the same kind of character but she's a bit of a manipulator in that and a bit and she so she's yeah she is great definitely bring on more of her she was great in the role as well beyond the voice and the looks it was she was a pleasure Especially when she's asking him about his experiments and he starts to talk about the long chain molecules and all this. And she's just right there, like soaking it all up. And then she's just in her father's library reading about all this chemistry stuff. Yeah, I was just finding a book for for bed to put me to sleep kind of thing. And then when she starts to explain to her father, don't you know about long chain molecules and starts to explain this whole thing about polymers and all this. I was just like, she's great. She is really great. And just that she's really her own woman. Like she is not there just for Michael. She's not there for Sydney. She's just there for herself. And yeah, I really like her. She's very, very strong. Maybe slightly ahead of her time, actually, as a character at that point. Definitely. That kind of sparky female who isn't going to compromise who doesn't necessarily just want to do what her dad tells her to do and the expectations good character and well played definitely well we have to talk about the ending too where 
we find out that this material isn't as indestructible as it's purported to be. That when his assistant finds the rolls of fabric and they have started to disintegrate, and then you get that, I, it's kind of horrific to me when you've got all of the people that are after him and they finally surround him and they realize that the suit is falling apart in their hands and the way that they all go after him and start ripping the suit off of him and then laughing, just laughing at him as he's standing there just in his shirt and his, his boxer shorts. And that's it. And just all of these people laughing and then eventually dispersing. I was just like, my God, this feels almost like biblical the way that this is being shot. It was really dark, actually, and also I f- I found really interesting how the when when they've ripped the pa- you know the pa- the polymer off the paper off or whatever the one of the guys one of the workers puts gives him his coat and he puts his coat around him and says here you go you want you, you uh, wear this or something along those lines the implication being you're one of us again now basically that we've stripped away what make what has made you special and you are now one of us you're one of the proles you're one of the the, you're back in the chain. You're back in the system again. And I thought that was brilliant because it was really subtly done, and it could just have been an act of kindness by somebody. But there's there's more going on. There's a subtext to that which I thought was really clever at the end of, like you say, Mike, that quite biblical, very dark moment where all of his dreams just li- almost literally go up in smoke at that point. You know, it's it's quite a, it's a really really good ending in that way. I mean, a few years ago we talked about the film Perfume, the story of a murder, and in that the hero kind of douses himself with this perfume that drives people crazy and they literally rip him apart at the end of this and then they all kind of wake up and realize what they've done and they're all ashamed it's kind of similar in that way the person and it's really hard to tell but i believe the guy that gives him his his coat is frank one one of bertha's kind of cohorts which would just add a little more to that not that it's all that important you know you mentioned m earlier mike in reference to the ending. And when I watched it the first time, all I kept thinking about was the elephant man when they're chasing him on the train platform. Just that, and it gave me that feeling of everybody's after him. He's in this weird getup and it's kind of rough that way too. And when they finally unmask him, they disperse, you know, they feel bad about it or maybe they don't, but it, I was watching it with the subtitles on yesterday and it says, you know, laughter slowly fades away or something. And it kind of nailed that point home. I was like, oh, maybe they're starting to feel a little bit bad about this, that he's standing there virtually naked in front of them as a failure. The whole idea of him on the run and just, you know, everybody after him, it is played for laughs, a lot of it. And there are some, I mean, this whole movie is genuinely funny, but there are some really good bits in here. The whole thing of when he's trying to get into Burnley's and Burnley is looking for him and he's just like, where's he at? I want him here. We have to find him. And meanwhile, he's trying to get into the front door of Burnley's house and his manservant is just keeps turning him away. Kind of reminded me of like uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I was waiting for like that knocking hand to be on the door, you know, with odd job not letting him in. That whole bit is great. And then, you know, you get moments like this with real pathos at the end of it. And then you get that little kind of knife twist. You get the that wild music comes back up after all of this, that crazy theme that he has. And then you get Burnley back on the narration and just like, oh, yeah, his failure brought relief to those the world. We've seen the last of Sidney Stratton. And 
underneath that, you see Stratton walking, and then boom, the light bulb goes off. And you hear Burnley say, at least I hope we've seen the last of him. And that's when oh, you hear have the, we? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's when you hear that like global glop type of stuff come back up on the soundtrack. And you're just like, okay, he's off to another adventure. And it's like, it still gives you that little bit of hope at the end. Just like, okay, this guy might still be able to do what he wants to do, even though it might be bad for everybody. Had this been made like 30 years later, we would have had the man in the white suit again. Yes, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then have done the same story again just with a different cast like you know that little bit of music is just so engrossing when it started i thought oh are is this gonna be a wacky comedy because it's a little bit out of place in the rest of the film because of those heavier subjects that run throughout but i thought oh that's an interesting sound i'm supposed to take note of that and then it it's got this rhythm and I'm like, what the hell is going on with this thing? And I, I thought if this hasn't been sampled in a rap song by now, people are failing because this has just got the greatest beat to it. And I, so after the movie ended the first time I looked it up and it's only been sampled a couple of times in songs. And I'm thought, you guys are missing out on this, man. This has got the great beat But every time I love that. That's what that sound and that contraption is what, Daphne recognizes when he's now at her factory and then at the end when it's playing and I don't know if this was intentional but he is walking to the beat of of the sound and I thought oh that's great it either just worked perfectly or they had it playing and had him walk that way I don't know yeah that was just one of those little bits of this movie that was so endearing to me the commentary for this movie I'm not sure if I like the commentary or not, because the gentleman who does it, he takes a long time to get to a point sometimes, and he does a lot of paper rattling in, in front oh of the microphone. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like, stop it. Stop rattling those papers. Have everything on one paper. <laughs> it's like, it drives me crazy. But he did bring up this thing that there was a song that went along with this movie. It was Jack Parnell and his rhythm. And the name of the song is the White Suit Samba. So I'll be playing us out with that later. Oh, good, on. good. Uh, but yeah, I did see that. Guy. I didn't listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And that was produced. I found it on an album that was a, a whole compilation of things that were produced by George Martin. So hopefully this won't suck. That, I think, was mentioned in one of the documentaries I watched. And I was like, oh, that's the kind of stuff he was doing pre Beatles. Let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with Robert Sellers, author of The Secret Life of Ealing Studios, Britain's favorite film studio, right after these brief messages. What if you owned your own drive-in? An open-air theater outside of time and space. You could show anything you want. You could pair together any movies you want, regardless of genre, regardless of when they were made, regardless of quality. If you could own such a theater, if you could do whatever you wanted, you certainly wouldn't do it like this. It's like if we don't use it, you'll be like wasting my precious 
fucking fluids with <laughs> precious creative juices. Oh my god, I had to I had to read two sentences. <laughs> over and over. Who is this guy think he is? Kubrick? Fincher? <laughs> Who's this guy? Are you ready for me to read this, Mr. Hitchcock? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the bird gonna shit on my shoulder in this scene too? He's a plastic bird. He doesn't even make shit on his own. <laughs> <laughs> the all-night drive-in picture show available now at a podcatcher near you before i even talk to you about ealing i'm so curious because you've been writing since gosh what the late 80s how did you get into the film book writing business i've got a very understanding wife who pays the bills she's got a proper job like you i'm sure growing up being just a huge film fan loving watching movies Wanted to be an actor originally, so I started writing comedy sketches and sort of writing short film scripts and things with the hope of perhaps getting into into the into the business. When that didn't work out, I, I sort of, the next best thing was uh, film journalism. So I started writing for film magazines like Empire Magazine, which I'm sure you know, and Film Review. And then one step from there is writing, writing film books and uh, entertainment books and books on popular culture and television, theatre, music, not just cinema, because it's quite a specialised market cinema. I'm spreading my wings a bit and doing more sort of popular culture books now than just, just cinema. But I still, still, still enjoy writing books on cinema as well, though, because uh, you know, that is my, my, my passion, what I love so much. I think one of your first ones was not necessarily about a, a, a film star, though he has been in plenty of films, but you wrote about Sting. That's right. I don't know how I got that. That was a music publisher. I think I got in touch with them about something else, and they said, no, come in and we'll talk about projects. And they, one of the projects was Sting. So I, I decided, because I was a big fan of the police, so I did that. And that was, yeah, that sort of got the ball rolling. And I, sort of, I think I've done about one a year, I think. I was a, you know, it's the only, it keeps me off the streets, you know, it's the only thing I can do, really. I mean, it is. And people say, oh, you're an actor or you're a... And it's, yes, I know, but because I can't do anything else. Literally, I can't do anything else, you know. So tell me about the secret history of Ealing Studio. How did that job come to you? I think I've only had one or two books in my whole career where I've actually been approached by the publisher saying, or my agent has been approached saying this publisher wants to do this or they want to make they want to work with you. Mostly it's me coming up with ideas and trying to persuade publishers to publish them, which is getting more and more difficult. And this was one of those books. This was a publisher who approached me. They had done a series of books called The Secret Life of I think they'd done the Secret Life of Wimbledon, the tennis championships, not the actual location Wimbledon, which is very pretty. Secret Life of the Spitfire and things like that, very, very English sort of subjects. And I think they had a mind to do a book on Ealing Studios, which I thought was interesting. A great number of the films, of course, grew up on them, like everybody in this country and, uh, and around the world grew up on those wonderful films. But I didn't know very much about it. I knew that there'd been a few books written previously, so I wasn't sure whether I would want to do it because I like to do things that haven't been done before. Um, so I did a little bit of research and, and the three or four books that had been written on, on Ealing were tended to be sort of, I wouldn't say film theory, but sort of more analysis. Whereas sort of books I like to, 
to write are oral histories. So instead of sort of going deep into the rationale and what these things mean, I like to talk about what happened during the making of the film rather than what the film means. The problem with Ealing is 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 that because we're talking about 30s and 40s and 50s, I was there probably wasn't anybody still still breathing who I could talk to. So I did a bit of research and I found that there were people still with us. Obviously, not the big stars and the movers and shakers, but that sort of the um, the forgotten people, really, who started working there when they were left school. So they were 17, 18 when they started to work there. So they were sort of in their 70s and 80s. And these were sort of the people who had been sort of forgotten, really. They were the sound editors, um, the, the draftsmen, people who painted the scenery, third assistant directors, um, most of who went on, of course, to be to have very good careers. But that's where they started. And uh, I thought, this is an opportunity to tell their story. Because everybody knows about Alec Guinness and all those famous films, but people don't know about these people. And I thought it would be interesting for them to talk about not only their story, their personal story of how they got to work at Ealing, but also the day-to-day life was like at Ealing, which hadn't been covered before, what the canteen was like, what the food was like, who were the, the, the personalities, what it was like um, having to clock in. It was like a factory. They, they actually had to clock in, which you don't, I don't think you did any other film studio in England. Um, and if you were a couple of minutes late, you got, you got fined 10p or something. It was quite strict. So uh, those stories haven't been told before. So I, I thought this was a worthwhile project to do. Yeah, it really plays into that whole secret life idea because you are literally looking at the people behind the scenes that are making it all happen. I, does that happen in the other secret life books or did you just say, oh, this is attacked? I think so. I, I didn't read them, but I think that's that was the sort of gist of it to go behind the scenes, as it were, and, and find things that find out things that people didn't know about institutions that we all know about, but maybe behind the scenes we, there's lots of information that we don't know about. So lifting the lid on it, as it were, yeah. And that's the, I think this this approach was the reason why I, I got off Mr. Scorsese to uh, to do the forward. I think he found the approach of the book very interesting. I think he liked the fact that it was the little people talking for the first time, really, which which I think encouraged him to, to write the forward to the book, which is a lovely forward. And uh, it was very nice of him to do it. Yeah, Martin Scorsese, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> I'd, I'd worked with it. Well, I'd worked with him, but I'd sort of, a couple of years prior to this book, I, I helped a chap called Vic Armstrong, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know about, a stunt man and then second unit director and action movie director, doubled for Harrison Ford in the Indiana Jones films, things like that. And I helped him write his memoirs, and so we got lots of famous people that he'd worked with over the years to submit little quotes and memories of working with Vic, and Martin Scorsese was one of them. So I had a sort of an inroad already with, with Scorsese, so um, it was sort of an open door that I could, I could uh, knock on. He could, have, he could have still told me to get lost, of course, but he didn't. He was, he was very nice. Here in the States, there were Warner Brothers, Paramount, MGM, all of these different studios. There's Ealing in the UK, but what were the other studios at the time? Who were their competition or just the other people working alongside them? The competition at the time, although Ealing is probably the oldest film studio in the UK, possibly even the world. It goes back to 1902, was the first film studio there, which was a greenhouse. You know, those old studios that were made of glass for the lights. 
And then later on in the 1930s, somebody called Basil Dean came along. Because there were already film studios sprouting up around London, obviously because London was the sort of the centre of theatre. So all the actors lived in London. So all the film studios, and it's the same as still today, all the film studios, all the big film studios in the UK around London. So you have Pinewood, the famous Pinewood Studios, and Shepperton, which are the two big studios which are still operating now. They're all sort of outside of London. So when Basil Dean was looking for a, a studio, he looked. At, I think he looked at some weather reports, and uh, Wimbledon seemed to be the best area in Greater London that had we didn't have much air pollution or fog. So that was the place to set up a, a film studio, and I think it was the first purpose-built film studio in the country. Denham was another big one. Um, that's gone and it's no longer exists, but that was one of the biggest film studios in the country at the time. And then there was MGM Boreham Wood, which is still with us. So that's Elstree. That's where Star Wars was made. Half of it was turned into supermarket, but some of it is still going. 2001 Space Odyssey was filmed there as well. We're pretty bad with heritage in this country. We tend to, a lot of film studios where these wonderful films were made and these wonderful backlots. It was the same in Hollywood, of course, wasn't it? Fox sold up their backlot, didn't they, at the end of the 60s and sold off all of their costumes. And so the cultural heritage of, of countries aren't looked after very well. So these wonderful studios where these amazing films were made are, are now supermarkets or uh, shopping centres or housing estates, which is very sad. Although Ealing is still still with us. It's, it's still a, a filmmaking hub. The beautiful, famous white building, which looks like a manor house, doesn't it? it doesn't it's, it's a strange place. It, it's sort of, it's like somebody parachuted in a film studio in, into suburbia. Really, you've got this village, village green, and these shops and these houses, and then bang, and you've got this film studio as well, which is quite, quite uh, interesting. And it's a beautiful old white building, like a manor house, and then behind it is all the studio sets and the, and the stages. And that's still there. The, the, the old old house is still the front of the studio. Very small. Pinewood, Shepparton, Denham, all of those places, Elstree, were huge, huge studios. Ealing was very small. It was called a, a postage stamp of a studio, it was called, because it was very small. Because it was built in, in a sort of a housing area, they could never extend it because they couldn't knock down the houses on either side. And the back lot went to a back of the studio where the stages were and the back lot was a public park. So they couldn't extend forward, so it would go into the road. They couldn't extend sideways because you'd have to knock people's houses down. And they couldn't extend at the back either because it was a public park. So it was stayed the same size. Um, it didn't, didn't get smaller, it didn't get bigger either. So they only had three stages. That's all they had which is the reason why they only made one film at a time. Maybe during the war, because they're making a lot of films for propaganda purposes during the war, they would sometimes possibly make more films. But in peacetime, and for most of their history, they would just make one film at a time. The schedules were usually eight to ten weeks, and then there'll be a little break of a few weeks. People would still come in to the studio, though, because they were all on contract unlike other film studios where you'd go in at Pinewood or Shepperton and make a movie and then you'd go off somewhere else to make another film somewhere else as a freelancer. All the directors, producers, writers, editors at Ealing were on contract. 
So they all stayed at Ealing all year. So when there wasn't a film, they sort sort of put their feet up a bit and sort of had a little a little break. And then the next film would, would go go on the conveyor belt, and 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 the whole thing would start again. One interesting thing also is that everybody took a holiday at the same time. The studio would close down for two weeks or three weeks a year, and everybody went on holiday. So it was it was a real community. I think is the best way to say it. It was a real family atmosphere working there. And I think that helped the the kind of films that they made because it was such a unique way of working. I think the films that they made were themselves unique. Somebody said there were there were films made for the family by a family. I think somebody said, which sort of, sort of sums it up, I think. Well, that's what I was getting from your book a lot too, is it feels like there was that sense of ownership and then also the idea of like, craftsmanship and people helping out other people in order to learn their trade or even get better with their trade. You know, the whole idea of like, oh, this director didn't do such a great job on this one, but don't worry, we can help edit, we can you know, redirect, and then the next one will be better. It was very, very democratic in that way. Yeah, they all sort of pitched in and helped each other's films because they had a team of maybe six or seven producers and the same amount of directors. And because it was a permanent staff, they were always there. So maybe Charlie Crichton wasn't making a film that month, but he would be, always be there every day. So if if somebody needed a bit of help on the on on the stage, maybe a bit of dialogue or, or to help out, Charlie Charlie would turn up and and give them a hand. They all watched each other's rushes. They all watched the final cut as well. So the uh, Sandy McKendrick's film was being shown. All the other eating directors were there watching it, and they'd all give their give their opinion at the end. That's how the scripts were approved as well. If somebody wrote, say, Tibby Clark wrote a script, that script would be sent around to all the heads of department, all the producers and all the other writers, directors. They'd all read it, and then they'd all sort of make a little their comments, write their comments down. And if, if there was a lot of positive feedback about that script, then that script went ahead. It was very democratic in that way. With them being so central in London, was there any ever any problem with sound and just having a whole city around them? I, I think there was a lot of plane noise. The stages weren't particularly well soundproofed, so there would be problems with, with aircraft. You didn't, probably in the 1940s, you probably didn't get much aircraft going over because there, there wasn't a lot of transatlantic flights at the time. Although during the war, of course, you had different kinds of airplanes flying over, of course. It was an interesting time during wartime, which is when Michael Balkan sort of took over, who became the head of Eating Studios, really, ran the place during its golden age. Some interesting stories about you'd have somebody on the top of the, the studio roof who was a plane watcher, so he'd be watching to see if he could spot Heinkels coming over to Bob London. He'd be up there all day, you see. And while he was up there, they, they'd, they'd send up bits of scenery for him to paint, so at least he was, he was doing something at the same time. So... Um, yeah, so it's always all this thing of pitching in. Just, uh, was there a particular style or even just thematics that the studio would specialize in? You know, I know like Warner Brothers, they were big, very well known for their gangster films at one point. But was was there an Ealing type of film? Well, I, I think I think now when people say Ealing, they think of the comedies, don't they? I'm sure. Passport to Pimlico, Lavender Hill, Mob, The Lady Killers. What was interesting? researching the book is is just how much variety of films that they did make they made war films 
They made crime films. They made adaptations of classic novels like Nicholas Nickleby, romantic love stories, musical musicals, quite diverse. But I, I think it's the, it's the comedies, isn't it, that people remember. The comedies go back to Basil Dean before Balkan took over. Basil Dean came from the theatre world and music hall, and uh, some of his subjects were a little bit too theatrical and stagey. But he did bring in people like Gracie Fields, who was a very famous British northern working class comedian, sort of, I guess, I guess the, the closest American one person you could, maybe Lucille Ball, that kind of personality. He also brought in somebody called George Formby. Well, I'm not sure how, how many American people know. Uh, he was, again, a northern working class comedian. And those films are incredibly popular in the 30s and early 40s. Ealing was always used to making comedy films and people enjoyed watching them. And then when Michael Balkan took over from Basil Dean, he brought in Will Hay, who was a, a very famous British comedian. So I think Ealing has always um, been famous for his comedies, but I think the golden period was, was a remarkable year, 1949, where you had, within the space of six or seven months, you had Passport to Pimlico, then you had Whiskey Galore, then you had Kind Hearts and Coronets. I think that sealed the deal, really. An Ealing film became a brand recognised around the world, particularly for comedy. Yeah, that was the thing I found surprising, was just how well they were playing in the United States for a while. I think they did well. I think critically they always did well. But I think Whiskey Galore was the first big hit, the, the one that really, really made an impact box office-wise in America. There's a funny story about an American executive coming to visit Ealing and saying to Michael Balkan that the Whiskey Galore had been a sleeper hit and, and Michael Balkan had never heard of that expression before and he, he thought it meant that uh, the film would be putting audiences to sleep. But he, we, <laughs> he didn't know what a sleeper hit was. With 1949 being that banner year, I mean, how did the studio progress in that post-war period into the 50s? I think there was a definite shift, I think, in, in, in emphasis. Because during the war, Balkan had contacts in the government, so he was making propaganda films for the government and making a film films with a sort of propaganda feel to them. Films like Convoy, which, which was, was celebrating different aspects of, of the armed forces, be it the merchant navy or be it the, the fleet air arm or commandos. And I think by about 1944, I, th I think when, when it was obvious that the Allies were going to win, I think the sh there was a shift in, in audiences wanted to see. I think, I think audiences were getting fed up of watching raw films and I think they'd had enough of, they'd lived through the Blitz and they didn't really want to see all that on the, on the movie screens. And I think there was a definite thirst for entertainment, for comedy, for musicals, for love stories. So I think there was a definite a shift in that respect. Here, Michael Balkan wrote, I'll read it because it's not very long and it sort of sums up what was happening because the, uh, the end of the war. He sat down and he wrote a manifesto as to what he believed post-war British cinema should strive to be. This is what he wrote. The need is great for a projection of the true Britain to the rest of the world. Britain as a leader in social reform, in the defeat of social injustices and a champion of civil liberties, 
Britain as a patron and parent of great writing, painting and music. Britain as a questing explorer, adventurer and trader. Britain as the home of great industry and craftsmanship. Britain as a mighty military power standing alone and undaunted against terrifying aggression. Fiction films which portray contemporary life in Britain in different sections of our society. Films with an outdoor background of the British scene. Screen adaptations of our literary classics. Films reflecting the post-war aspirations, not of governments or parties, but of individuals. I think with Balkan, he very much set the pattern for the films that were made at Ealing. He was incredibly moralistic, very conservative, very aloof, but very paternalistic. A lot of people I spoke to sort of saw him as a godlike figure almost, but other people said he was very approachable. You could talk to him. He, he wasn't at all uh, standoffish, but he was very paternalistic in that way. And his personality ruled the studio. He would go around every day in the morning. He would go to the set to see what was being filmed. They stay, sit on and have a, have a look at how, how it was progressing talk to the actors, talk to the director, and then he'd go around all the workshops and talk to people. And he did that every single day. But I think what's the thing with, with, with Balkan is that for him, the only kind of nationalism worth anything was cultural nationalism. That the films that he wanted Eating to make, as he wrote in that manifesto, which should project an image of Britain to the world, our beliefs and our strengths, the kind of people that we were, um, so the films that Eating should be making were sort of very indigenous films from the soil of the country and projected an image of, of what it was like to be British, really. I guess it's, um, I wouldn't say a supremacist sort of thought that, you know, the, the world can learn lessons from, from, from Britain. That was his belief anyway, and I, and I think, that's, that, I think that, that's in all the films that they continued to make, I think. One thing that we picked up on when we were talking about a man in the white suit is that it seems almost like the status quo is the desired state because the the capitalists seem to be in the wrong, the labor unions seem to be in the wrong. There's Alec Guinness's character who just wants to invent to invent and upset the apple cart and even the poor old lady that lets him stay at her house for free while he's working for the company for free. That was one thing that I found super interesting that just it was like, you can make progress, but really don't go too crazy because you're going to upset everybody. He's directed by Sandy McKendrick, of course, isn't it? Who was a bit of an outsider, Eadley. Um, he was sort of the, the new kid on the block very much. And he felt separate to all the other directors. So pe people have read into that film that sort of the, the Guinness character is McKendrick and the, the nasty mill owners is Balkan and Ealing. Um, sort of stifling him, stifling his altruism and, and his creative individuality, yeah. which is an interesting way of looking at it. But Kendrick was an interesting chap because uh, he was uh, originally in advertising and then he came to work at Ealing as a storyboard artist and he got his break because there's a chap called Monja Danichewski, who was the head of publicity at Ealing brilliant at his job. He was there for about 10 years and he'd seen all these other people come in as sort of assistant this or assistant that and rise up to the giddy heights of, of being a director or producer. And he 
finally wanted his chance. He wanted to produce a film. Balkan said, well, our slate's full for this year. You know, we literally, we can't do any more films this year. And Monja threatened to, to walk to walk away, to, to leave. And Balkan didn't want to lose him because he, was, he, was he really was a fantastic PR person. So he said, look, if you can find something, and I promise I'll, I'll, I'll fit it in. And Monja came across a story which became Whiskey Galore. It's a wonderful story about this boat full of uh, gallons and gallons of, of whiskey, bottles of whiskey that ship, was shipwrecked off the coast of Scotland and all the, uh, the villagers found all these bottles and, uh, and basically <laughs> had a very good six months. The problem was that you know, Balkan said, yes, okay, you could produce this film, but all of my directors are full, you know, are, are busy. They, 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 so he had, to get, he had to bring in a new director, not an Ealing director. And he, he brought in Sandy McKendrick, who was, who was the storyboard artist, but obviously wanted to be a director. Incredible gamble. Balkan said, no, you have to get somebody else. But Monjo insisted that it had to be, had to be McKendrick. And Balkan said, okay. And when you think about it, incredible gamble. Producer who'd never produced before and a director who'd never directed. And off he went uh, on vacation to Scotland and he was phoning his wife every few evenings in an absolute depressive mood that he wasn't working because uh, there were t- huge delays because of the weather. And the film almost was never shown because it, it didn't run. It, it just didn't make sense. And Balkan told Kendrick to go off somewhere for, for a couple of weeks. And he got all the, the directors, the Ealing directors like Charlie Crichton and Robert Hamer or Charlie Friend. And they all sat down and looked at all the, the outtakes and the, the footage that wasn't used. Basically, they rescued the film in the cutting room. And he, even when it was finished, that um, Balkan didn't think it was going to be a big hit. and It wasn't sort of the, the big release. It wasn't going to get a big opening or anything like that. And it became their biggest hit so far. So it's, um, there's one, one funny story actually about um, working with the public because obviously they filmed the wilds of Scotland and they filmed in this very small little village with these islanders and villagers. And after a few weeks of filming, these villagers started to get the hang of movie making. So Sandy McKendrick would go up to sort of the postmistress, who was this extra, and saying, oh, I need you to stand there for this scene. And said, no, no, I, don't, I, think, I think you'll find that in the last shot I was over there. So if I'm standing here, you won't get me in the right angle. So um, the, these villagers really had got, got the, the, hang, the hang up of, of, the, of the way to make movies. Yeah. A film called The Captive Heart, which was one of these sort of war films that they made for propaganda purposes. And it was, a, it was about returning POWs. Husbands that were return, returning back home to their wives. It was directed by Basil Deard. There was one scene where this POW husband is returning back to his wife, and his wife is standing in front of the country cottage when he and he walks out the gate. But um, no matter how many times um, he, he shot it, he, he couldn't get the actress to have the right expression. This wonderful emotional response to her husband coming back home. She didn't have anything. They wasn't there. And he kept saying, cut, cut, trying again and again, but she didn't, he wasn't getting it. So he just, he, he called, he called it, called it a day. And then the next day he went in and looked at all the rushes and all the outtakes to see if he could find something. And there was one shot that he did. He said cut, but before the camera went off, somebody in the background said, tease up. And the woman's face lit up. So she was going to get a cup of tea. 
and that had he used that's that's the shot he used. <laughs> it was the perfect expression, and he was just the tea the tea trolley coming around for a cup of tea. But that was that was that was the look he was after of her husband coming back. So, so that was quite a nice. But it's interesting also as an example of how they got their ideas and stories. And that was Michael Balkan's wife with the Red Cross during the war. And then at the end of the war, one of her jobs was to repatriate people who'd been in prisons, prisoner wars. And she said to, her, to Michael, this would be a very interesting story to do a, a film about that. So that's, that's how that, so it's interesting how films get made. And there's a pub just outside called the Red Lion, which was just outside the studio because unlike Pinewood and Shepperton, that had bars. There was no bar at Ealing. So at lunchtime, all the directors and producers went to the Red Lion and at the end, end of the day as well. You could go in there and they'd all be in there boozing. So that's how a lot of stories were, were developed in, in there, yes. There's another um, very quick story talking about tea trolleys, which is a film called Where No Vultures Fly, which was starred Anthony Steele, who was sort of this beefcake matinee idol and it was a, a safari film uh, made in east africa on location in east africa and there's a scene in the film where he's up a tree and there's a leopard on the next branch obviously they couldn't film that out on location so that was filmed back at ely so it took a lot of planning to do that scene so they had to build the prop department had to build this huge tree and they got a leopard from london zoo and they fit fitted a platform or wooden platform in the middle of the tree and they placed him placed the leopard on on that platform and they drug drugged the leopard so he was he was a bit sleepy. And then Anthony Steele was on the next branch and there was a plate glass window between them. And that's how they were going to shoot it. And this tree was in a huge sort of one of those cages that they have at circuses, you know, for the lion taming. And there was only, and there was one door in and one door out, but there was this huge sort of iron cage, and they put this set of a tree, this tree in there, and they had this leopard on on the tree, and they had Anthony Steele up there as well, and they were just about to shoot, and then the tea trolley woman came in with with, with tea, so they all all the cameramen and all all the people went round and had a cup of tea, and suddenly. The, the the person who told me the story was was his office was outside his office, the window faced the stage door, and suddenly the door burst open and everybody ran out because what had happened the leopard because it was so drugged it fell off the tree and landed on the tea trolley, and so everybody was uh, filing out of this one exit and then straight out of the studio. I mean, it's almost like an eating comedy itself, isn't it? That kind of thing. Has there been a movie made about Ealing? I mean, there's enough stories. There's another one that no one was allowed to smoke on the st- on the studio. They weren't allowed to smoke in their offices. They weren't allowed to smoke anywhere near the stage. And there was this um, rather officious fire inspector who would walk around all the time checking that people were smoking. And then one one day there was a small fire in the car park. And it's this there was these I think rubber tires or something. A rubbish tip caught fire. So this was after years and years of this guy going around every day checking for fires and telling people not to smoke. This finally was his was his chance to to be a proper fireman. And he and he got the got the hose, and everybody came out to to, to watch 
to watch this fireman deal with this this fire. And he turned the water on, and nothing came out except for a couple of cigarette butts and a dead mouse. No water. So again, now it's straight out of an Ealing comedy, isn't it? Eventually, Ealing loses its luster. I mean, after a while, it's not like, oh, a new Ealing comedy comes out. When is that, and how does that happen? I th- I think it sort of happened in the mid fifties. You'd had this incredible run of of hit comedies, the Lavender Hill Mob, Tide Hearts and Coronets, and then you had films like Titfield Thunderball, which were trying too hard maybe to emulate past glories, and they weren't quite the, hitting the mark. I think um, there's only so many times you go back to the well, I think. And other people, other production companies were, were making other films. The, the Caribbean films were starting, Citrinian films. People were sort of making sub-Ealing films or Ealing-like films. And I think the public, maybe the public, you can have too much of a good thing. There were too many of these kind of Ealing-type comedies. So so when a real Ealing comedy came out, the luster had, had sort of gone off and... Uh, People weren't uh, weren't excited by them anymore. Sort of the last hurrah is the Lady Killers. There's some amusing stories from Lavender Hill Mob. So yes, we can talk we can talk about the Lavender Hill Mob, which is one of the the classic Ealing comedies, and that was written by T. B. Clark, who who wrote most of them and became quite well known for the Ealing comedy films. The origin of that film was that he was assigned to write a crime film about a gold bullion heist. And he was racking his brains trying to come up with how to get the gold out of the country. How do, how do you, once you've got the gold, how do you smuggle it out? And a friend of his came out from Paris on holiday and brought him back an Eiffel Tower paperweight. And a bell went off in his head and that's it. That's how, that's how to do it. And then because of, because of that idea of the paperweight being the means of smuggling the gold out, it suddenly for him turns into to a comedy rather than a straightforward crime film because it was such an absurd notion. And he went to see Balkan and said, I have to change this into a comedy. And he said, fair, fine, 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 fair enough. And then he had to come up with the idea of how to do the actual bank heist itself, the gold bullion robbery itself. And he went to the Bank of England and he went up to the, the front desk and there was a form used to fill in saying, well, what is the purpose of your visit? And he wrote to get information about a gold bullion robbery. If you did something like that today, you would probably have uh, cops descending on wires from the ceiling, 10 people pointing a gun at you. But uh, all he got was this very mystified look from the person behind the counter and he picked up the telephone and asked for the, the head of the gold bullion section who came up and um, he was asked to go into his office, sat down, and the, the head of the gold bullion said, this is a very strange request, sir. Exactly what do you mean by information on and T B Clark said it was actually for a writing screenplay. So oh oh right, it's a screenplay. We were rather worried it was it was a it was a robbery, sir. And then Tibby said, you know, he's got he wants he wants to know the best way to steal gold from the Bank of England. And he said, Well I'll I'll get my assistant on for this at once. And he picked up the phone, the assistant came up and he didn't know. So he phoned his assistant. And in the end there was about five or six people in the office all discussing how to how to steal gold bullion from the Bank of England. And eventually they came up with a very good a very good heist, and that's the one that's in the film. So so the the heist in Lavender Hill Mob is, is courtesy of the, the Bank of England itself, which is um, 
Any, any interesting area of, uh, of of research? Yeah, there's a wonderful scene, isn't there? There's when Ali Giddis and Stanley Holloway are all in the Eiffel Tower, and uh, they I think they there's a school all these school children, aren't they? Who's got who've got Eiffel Tower paperweights? But there's a scene where they have to run run away, and I think in the end you see them. It's a studio shot now, isn't it? They're they're running down a spiral staircase, and it's a back projection. But before, I think they were they were shot. They actually shot it on location. There was sort of a worker's ledge and a, and a doorway. They must have been right in the in the first or second section of the Eiffel Tower, so they were quite high up. And the director said to Ali, "Just open that doorway and just run down, and we'll the camera will follow you." So it's action. So Ali grabbed hold of the door, opened it, ran down, and within four steps there was nothing. The stairs fell away, and it was just literally eternity. There was nothing there. So we. Very, very carefully, he made his way back up, you know. And that happened. They almost killed him about three or four times, actually, Alex. Yeah. The, the most famous one is his on Kind Hearts and Coronates, the, the classic. He, of course, he plays eight people in that, doesn't he? The, the Dascoin family, which was Michael Balkan's idea, actually, to you know, to play all eight of them. And there's the famous one where he's the, he's the admiral in the sinking ship. The, the ship is sinking, and he's, he's staying the captain's the sinking ship as it were yeah and he's he's there and he gives the salute at the end and the water comes o- up over him and the hat bobbles and all um so to film that they 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 put him in the water tank and they wanted the gag at the end of the water going over his head and for his cap to come off and to bobble bobble along now to do that they had to tie tie his feet with steel wire to the bottom of the tank, and they said, "Can you hold your breath for thirty seconds, Alex?" And Alex said, "Well, actually, I can hold my breath for four minutes." I said, "Oh, that's, that's fantastic, but you won't need to do it for that. Just for thirty seconds." The hat bobs off. So they shot it, and then they, everyone said, that, "How did you? Yeah, fine, fine, fantastic." They started getting the cameras off and doing all. And four minutes afterwards, they thought, "Hang on, well, what about Alex?" And he was still under the water. And they grabbed some wire cutters and dived in and um, cut him loose. He was he was under there for about four and a half minutes, which is crazy. You would you would think so a story like that would be apocryphal because how can you forget the lead actors underwater? He wrote about it in his autobiography, so it has to it has to be true. <laughs> and there's a couple of extraordinary going back to the Lavender Hill mob. There's a couple of film debuts in, in that film which are worth noting. There's a, a young actor in it who is. In a police laboratory scene at the back somewhere, he doesn't have a line, but he, you can see him if, if you know to look for him. And he was sort of a, a protege of Alec Guinness. Alex was putting him into theatre productions and things, and uh, he was called Robert Shaw. So it's a, it's a film debut for Robert Shaw in the Lavender Hill. Mall. And there's also a debut for 21-year-old actress who appears at the begin, beginning of the film as a sort of um, cigarette cigarette girl she has one line of dialogue with Ali Guinness and that's Audrey Hepburn and when they were filming that scene Alex was obviously in it it took just a few takes he recognized he in I think I think she done one very brief role in another film or this may may have been her her first her first film and Alex said something and me pretty much straight away Gone up and phoned his his agent and said, "Look, I've just worked with this extraordinary person. I've no idea who she is, whether she's a professional actress or a dancer or where they've got her from. 
and even though she can act, but she's just got something. There's just something there. So he spotted it, but nobody else did. They they did give Audrey another role in a couple a couple of years later, or what, 13, 14 months later, called Secret People, which is sort of um, a drama about refugees in London. And she had a pretty decent supporting role in that film. But again, nobody spotted. You know, they didn't put her under contract or anything. And 12 months later, she's, she's off in Hollywood making Roman Holiday, becomes one of the biggest stars in the world. So it's interesting that they had Audrey Hepburn under their nose and they didn't do anything about it. I so admire what you did with the book, with talking to all of these people who were behind the scenes and just made everything work. I mean, it must have been maybe slightly difficult tracking everybody down, tracking everybody down and just getting them on record. The great thing now is is got IMDB, haven't you? So people who are working now, you get even people who are sort of semi-retired, they're on IMDB. But people who've been retired for 40 years, it's quite difficult. I managed to get hold of a few people, and then I would ask them, is there anybody that you know that I should talk to? And luckily, a few people have kept in touch with each other. So mainly it was other people saying, oh, you should speak to this person, and that person would say, you must speak to this person. So it was sort of a network. So that's how I got most of them. Um, so I was very lucky in that respect. But um, they all had lovely stories to tell. Um, what was lovely is this, a lot of them sort of the job because because their, their, their daddy knew somebody in the office or or their father was Lord Wassit and, and went to the same gentleman's club as Michael Balkan. There was a lot of that going on. Somebody got a job because he wrote for an application on, on Windsor Castle note paper. And Balkan was a bit of a snob, so he immediately got a job. But then there were other people who were sort of, should we say, working class people who found it a little bit more difficult to get in. There was one guy who used to walk past there every day and just dreamed of working there. It took him 10 years, but he finally, finally got, got in. So that, that was like, and somebody else was just walking the dock in the park and uh, the back lot. If you're walking in the park, you could see the studio. One day the doors were open. This woman was walking her dog, pushing a pram or something, and just saw what was going on in, on, on the stage and just thought, that looks exciting. And um, I would, I'd love to work there. And she did. A couple of, took a couple of years. but um, So, yeah, there's all these different um, different uh, ways they got, they got there from. Yeah, so it's, uh, and and um, there was this chap on the guard on the front gate called Robin Adair. There are pictures of, uh, old pictures of the, the front of Ealing, and you see this guy in, in this uniform. That's, that's Robin Adair. He was there, rain or shine. He was always at the front desk. I think he was ex-Coldstream Guards and couldn't get in without his permission. You would know, if you, if you were working on a film, you would know you, you were an extra. I don't know, 50 people walked in. 49 of them he'd know, but the one person... You don't work here. So uh, he knew everybody should be there. And uh, yeah, somebody always tried to get in, but couldn't get past him. So Robert, you are not one to take long holidays. You are always working, it feels like. So can you talk to me a little bit about your next project? The, the next project, which is done and dusted, is a book um, about the year 1971, my contention that it might argue, but I argue, and it's the, the greatest year in movie history, 
which is very subjective, isn't it? Because there's no greatest year in any of anything is the greatest film. It's it's all opinion and 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 and. But um, it's it's an incredible year, and my I've sort of written a hundred films, a hundred films from that year, little essay on each one, and that's that's next. And I'm sort of halfway through a book on Pink Panther films. I'm doing a book on the Pink Panther movies, so busy busy working on that. Interviewed Robert Wagner. And, Diane Cannon, the people like that. So it's got some great stories about Peter Sellers. He was, um, yeah, had a reputation for being quite, quite strange. There was an incredible, very interesting relationship between Blake Edwards and Peter Sellers, which was sort of a love hate relationship. By the end of each Panther film, they, they said they'd never worked with each other again, but they always, they always did. I think uh, sometimes money helps, doesn't it? Never going to work with Blake again. There's a million dollars. Okay, then. Justice Falls. Mr. Sellers, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure talking with you. No, I enjoyed it very much, and thanks very much for inviting me. Smoking cigarettes by the carton, drinking coffee by the pound. Slowly pulling my hair out by the roots. Acting funny, looking in a mirror, making faces like a clown. Just sitting here waiting for the man in the little white suit. Everybody told me you would drive me crazy and they said you'd have me barking like a- all right we are back and we we're talking about the man in the white suit and i don't know if this went over well or not but i know that there was a play of this with stephen mangan uh, a few years ago i want to say 2019 where he was the man in the white suit so every time i was looking this up i kept seeing pictures and i'd be like is that alicanus no that's stephen mangan so I like him a lot. I, I really like Megan a lot. I, I would love to see him in this role. Yeah. Have you seen Greenwing? Mangan is fantastic in that. He plays an awful person and he's so funny. Like he's he's a, he's a really, really good actor. Yeah. I, I could see I could see him in this because there's there's a real eccentricity about about this movie and about this story. And I could see him pulling that off. Different to Guinness, but that, I bet that would have been very good. I can see this working as a play, yeah, actually, thinking about it. I, I definitely can see that working. Well, and it was originally a play. It was um, Roger McDougall. I think it was... Oh, of course it was. The yeah. Bloom of the Rose or something like that, or The Bloom of the Flower. And then, yeah, so I was trying to look up that play, but every time I looked it up, it was taking me to the Mangan stuff as well, so... Was the Mangan play based on the movie, or was it the actual original play, do we know? That's a really good question. I want to say it was based on the movie rather than the play. Because the play would be quite old, obviously, wouldn't it? You know, like nearly 80 years old. So. I tried to look for the play as well to at least read that and see the similarities. And I believe he worked on the script as well, the guy that wrote the play, and may have been related to one of the other screenwriters or somebody involved in the in the I think crew. he was the cousin of Alexander McKendrick, the... Uh, director and co-writer yeah and, I, and every time i looked it up it just brought me back to the movie or to the newer thing and i didn't know what the newer thing was so yeah i was curious it doesn't really feel like this film's had much of a cultural shelf life in a way that maybe some of the other alien films have like kind hearts and coronets like the lavender hill mob like the lady killers you know films that are still talked about this one i don't even though i'd say it's as good as many of those actually um, if not better than some of them. I think I like this more than the Lavender Hill Mob, say, for instance, but it doesn't feel like it's quite had that, you know, carry through. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because of some of the ideas in here that aren't... I mean, Kind Arts and Coronets has a real darkness to it and a real 
you know, sinister element. And the Lavender Hill mob is is more of that caper romp. Maybe this, maybe the ideas here uh, were too too heavy <laughs> in a weird way. Even though it is a fun film for it to carry through, I don't know. Yeah, I and mean, it is bizarre that we can really relate to this movie all of these years later. Before we even started recording, we were saying like, oh, you know, AG, you're going to have to translate for us because there's probably so many cultural things. But really, this is such a universal film. It's just like, oh, yeah, I I can really understand where all of these characters are coming from. There's nothing in here that feels dated to me. And there's no real like Britishisms where I'm just like, now, what is that? Why? Well, I, I was wondering about that. I was wondering if I was going to get asked on this and tested on some of the lingo. But like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it was very universal. And yeah, this whole idea of this, you know, the little studio that could and just all of these same actors and, you know, the director is the cousin of the writer and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it just seems delightful. And it just feels like the kind of place that I you know, would really get behind. So now it's like, oh, this whole Ealing thing has opened up for me. And it's like, yeah, I, give me more. I want more of this same, stuff. Same for me. Yeah. It's been mentioned why maybe this one isn't as, as popular. And the little bit of reading I did, it, it seems like it's different than many of the other comedies. And that had something to do with the director. Like he was a little bit of a, not an outcast, but he, he wasn't fitting the mold just in the little bit of reading, his way of working was maybe slightly different than the usual model. And I don't know, not having seen those other films, how this varies. I was expecting more wackiness, and I'm glad that it wasn't as wacky. I'm not a big slapstick comedy fan. Mike, you mentioned the scene where he's trying to get into Burnley's house. That's where I was like, oh, we're veering into that a little bit. Still not terrible you know for me at least that physical comedy can put me off sometimes but i don't know if that's the different if that's why it's it's maybe not it seemed like in all the stuff that i read and and watched that a lot of people really really like this one why why is it not more recognizable i I, you know i don't have an answer obviously but it was interesting to me to think yeah this is i've never heard of this one i've heard of all those other ones haven't seen them yet but do people know about this film? I'm not sure they do, not to the extent of some of the others. And it's funny because McKendrick is, goes on to direct The Lady Killers, which obviously is much more well-known and successful afterwards. But yeah, it's, it is funny how maybe he didn't, at the time, I don't think he quite, I think he'd had a difficult experience on Whiskey Galore, and I think he was sort of demoted for a while after that, actually. And and then he, he was made into like a second unit, and he learned some stuff on that, and then was given the opportunity to do the man in the white suit but it was a case of at the time there were directors like robert hammer who did um kind hearts and coronets or charles crichton who did lavender hill mar both of whom you know directed really good movies and crichton obviously is even like fish called wonder like 30 odd years later is still making great films but like you know <laughs> that's one of my favorite movies at the time maybe that was part of it but it's hard to say why it is hard to say why because in theory i think this should have done Given as well, it had some of these scientific ideas and it was a little bit, it was playing with ideas about silly sort of science, technology, noises, things like that. You'd think there were those fun elements that would carry through in that way. So it, it's odd. Maybe it's, maybe it just didn't get a lot of play as well. Maybe it just didn't get a lot of repeats like some of the other movies did over the years on television and things. 
this whole idea of the frustrated scientist, I mean, that's a subgenre that we see a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this whole idea of the wacky professor, the absent-minded professor, you know, it just, I was Dexter thinking Riley. a lot. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about Fred McMurray. Fred and, McMurray, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Or even Robin Williams in the remake or some of these other, you know, science movies. Oh, was that and, Flubber? Flubber, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flubber. I mean, it's, it's strange. And just even the pacing of him when he comes up with the invention. I mean, it does feel very absent-minded professor, this whole like trying, 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 trying. And then the stuff comes out and then it's like, okay, how are we going to use this? We'll make the car fly. We'll have the, uh, you know, the basketball team win all these things. So I love that montage of them trying to get the formula right and the way that they keep exploding the laboratory. And then when they finally get it and the big wigs are right there by the machine and they don't know that they are. Oh, wow. You were here the whole time? As the sandbags increase and increase up to the point where they've they've got a guard who's a kid for some reason, you know, blocking the entrance to the lab. I love that escalation of the... (laughs) Well, and you've got that other kid, that little girl who really helps him out towards the end where she's just like lying constantly. (laughs) Gets him out of the room and then that little, that way. Oh, that was brilliant. I loved that. I also love how the little boy at one point says, Burnley comes down and and he says, you can't come in. I've had orders that nobody can come in. He says, I hardly think that applies to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The little kid doesn't care. He's just doing something. Yeah. It's very funny. He's doing his job. Yeah. I think that little girl would go on to work with McKendrick again in Crash of Silence, which is supposed to be like a deaf girl who's also mute. And it's very much this kind of pulls at the heartstrings. And then you get him just a few years later, he directs and is an uncredited co-writer on Sweet Smell of Success, which is one of the most cynical. I saw that and I was like, wow, that is a major shift in tone and oh, oh my boy, God. yeah. Well, I, I always feel like J.J. Hunsucker really inspired the Coen brothers, again, talking about the Coens, because I think Hunsucker comes right from his name. And that whole idea of the goofy inventor going up against the big wigs up on the god awful floor you know whatever yeah. however high up their he offices a letter norval bards is very put upon and this whole rise to fame and then coming crashing down when he you know tells buzz that his idea is terrible and then ends up stealing the bendy straw thing i was just going to mention dexter riley again since we had talked about him that's what kept popping up into my head as we watched this and his inventions and you know, getting chased by everybody who wants his inventions and stuff. More to exploit them and instead of to suppress them. But the one other thing about the movie that I appreciated was the lo-fi uh, special effects with the suit. I thought, oh, I hope we don't draw little lines around the suit to show that it's glowing. And it was just lighting, particularly in the chase scene when his face has been darkened. They do it really effectively when he's talking to Daphne the first time he has it on and he turns off the light and, you know, obviously a little spotlight beams on him. But when that light turns off, she completely blacks out and his face blacks out and then, you know, just by lighting. But then in that chase scene where he's kind of darkened in shots to to amplify the the fluorescence of the suit, I thought, oh, I'm so glad they didn't try, you know, some kind of drawn on effect and i really appreciated the restraint in that all i would say really is that this could be quite a good gateway to elin stuff i think this movie in many ways because i think if you like this 
if people watch this and they like this, I think I think they I think all of that other stuff, some of which is a different register, some of which is similar, I think will really appeal, you know, because it is there there is a bit of a trove of 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 stuff from this era. But yeah, I I I, I don't necessarily think this is a bad window. It it doesn't feel in a way like it's a movie that you have to know a lot of the Ealing style to enjoy. I think you could enjoy it anyway, whereas I think it's a, it's a bit of a window into something. I, I, it's one I'm going to recommend to people, I think, generally, because it is, it is a bit underseen and it would be nice to get this, you know, maybe, maybe we can all collectively work hard and get it on the, the uh, 2032 sight and sound poll of the 100 greatest movies. <laughs> <laughs> You're going you know. down, Sean Delman. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't yeah. think they're going to be asking me for my list no. anytime soon. <laughs> no. I'd love to know your list. Seriously, both of you guys. I would love to know. I, I, I mean, I've got friends that were asked for their opinions on that. I was like, wow, I, I know somebody who's big enough to get asked for that, but Apparently, I'm mutuals with a lot of people who are, well, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I follow them on Twitter. We're mutuals. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Performance. The only performance that makes it, that really makes it, that makes it all the way, is the one that achieves madness. Right? All right? This is the film about madness and sanity. A mad clown. About fantasy and reality. About death and life. Just don't know. About vice. Because I'm mad, bitch. And versa. Mick Jagger and James Fox in performance. A film that will bend your mind. From Warner Brothers Rated X, no one of the 17 admitted. That's right. We'll be back next week with an episode all about performance. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, AJ and Mark. So, Mark, what has been going on with you, sir? Well, not a whole lot on the wake-up heavy side of things. I've sort of taken a little break because November is a crazy busy month with Thanksgiving and all that crap. And so I will probably have my monthly watch list episode at some point here coming up. And on the horizon is a project with you and Chris Stashu that should be arriving in January. I don't know if I should allude to what that's about. Go for it. Go for it. Exclusive announcement right here. We will be discussing the short-lived TV series from the Zucker Brothers and Jim Abrams Police Squad, as well as some of the movies that uh, surround that uh, airplane and, of course, the Naked Gun series. So that'll be showing up in January. That is an instant subscribe for me. I, <laughs> I can't wait for that, guys. Seriously. That'll be a limited series of uh, around 10 episodes starting in January. And you can find all that on weirdingwaymedia.com. And AJ, what's the latest with you, sir? Various things still going on with me where um, I'm uh, writing my next book all about, I think I mentioned it before in a previous episode, all about the unmade Star Trek movies and TV shows and things like that. And uh, just continuing to write and podcast, uh, my podcast, The Discourse, uh, with my friend Carl Sweeney, which uh, we talk about all kinds of modern pop culture stuff, everything from 
uh, the, the sight and sound poll, which I mentioned, to the World Cup, you know, Football World Cup, all kinds of stuff. So that that's ongoing as well. So, um, yeah, you can find me at AJ Black Writer on Twitter if you want a bit more, and uh, my website, www.culturalconversation.co.uk. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth and Mark, go on over to waitingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. chemical reaction darling be my co-attraction while the test you play the samba of the white suit you're my electronic tonic absolutely supersonic little cathode ray oh say you find me quite cute formaldehyde formaldeho let's get down to bismuth you make my mouth h2o Honey, Bunsen, minus you here, I feel awful litmus blue, dear, come and dance with me, the samba of the white suit. Thank <laughs> you.